Good morning, everyone. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3? It is hard to believe that we're officially entering Christmas season. (laughs) Depending on how you view approaching Christmas, some of you, like in my household, have had the tree up for weeks, uh, and some of you playing music all the while, and let's end the debate now. The Christmas album, the official Christmas album, is the Andy Williams Christmas album. That's been blasting in our house, and we are excited to turn our full attention to Christmas. But I do think it wise to not rush through Thanksgiving, but to linger and acknowledge all the tremendous blessings that we have received this year from the Lord. He has been so kind to me. He's been so kind to my family. He's been kind to Emmaus Road Church, and we as pastors and leaders of Emmaus want to express our immense gratitude for you, for the church, for the people at Emmaus Road Church. Paul opened up many of his letters, almost all of his letters, to the churches in the New Testament with a section of thanksgiving and gratitude. He certainly did not view those sections as things to just get through, to get to the good stuff, and neither do we. So we are grateful. I am grateful for Christ and for his Church. And as Greg has said, today marks the first Sunday of Advent. This is the traditional custom of the church. Every year, setting aside four Sundays before Christmas Day to focus our attention on the Advent, the arrival, the coming of Christ. And it's right for us to take this time to focus on this because an argument could be made that the entire Old Testament, starting in Genesis 3.15 with the promise of the coming snake crusher, anticipates the advent, the arrival, the coming of the Messiah. Throughout the entire Old Testament, generation after generation, asks the question, is he here? Is it Seth, Adam and Eve's child of promise? Is it Noah or Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua or David? Surely it has to be David, right? And certainly all these men foreshadowed Christ to some extent, but these men were clearly flawed. Remember the great Christmas uh, prophecy in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Wow. While all those men listed above were, were godly men, leaders who had unique and unfathomable relationships with God, none of them met those qualifications or descriptions in Isaiah. So, the prophets waited until, as Paul describes in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so, Now, we live on the other side of the coming of the Son, and we are looking not forward, but backward. We remember and recall the coming of this promised Son who came to redeem us so that we might be adopted as sons. So, every year we take time. We take time to anticipate 
like Thanksgiving, we don't want the Christmas season to just uh, blow through us, just go by, feeling like the holidays just steamroll us, trying to survive all the parties and all the get-togethers and all the presents and the travel just to get back to some semblance of normality. No, we want to linger on this season. And we don't want our lingering just to center around the nostalgia of Christmas, which is great, right? That the smells, the songs, the food, the lights, the family, these are things we love about Christmas, and rightly so. We want to linger, but we want to linger on who this son is that's come in the fullness of time to redeem us. And in particular, this Advent, as Greg said, we are going to explore several texts where the Father directly addresses the Son. What does God the Father have to say about Christ, the Son incarnate? So today, we begin with one of the clearest, most glorious examples of the Father speaking to and about the Son at Jesus' baptism. The scene that Matthew describes here in Matthew 3 is easy to overlook, it's easy to read through, easy to read past without lingering and meditating on exactly what happened here. This text is not one of those that we should just read to get through, but one that we should digest and savor and see what the Lord has to communicate to us as we anticipate the Son that is and has come to do. So, like the coronation of a king, we want to take in all the sights, all the smells, all the symbolism, celebrating the arrival and the reign of the rightful king. So, if you would rise, if you are able, as we read Matthew 3, 13 through 17. I will read, this is God's word. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father, would you bless your word? Thank you for speaking to us so directly. We're grateful for it. Would you open our eyes to see your Son and our ears to hear your word to us about him, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's proper for us to remember that the Gospels are first and foremost eyewitnesses account, eyewitness accounts. Furthermore, they are inspired accounts that have different and specific audiences. The Gospel of Matthew is often referred to as the Jewish Gospel or the most Jewish book in the New Testament. This, there are numerous evidences for this within the letter But for our purposes, it is Matthew, more than any other gospel, that links Jesus and his life with all of the Old Testament prophecies. And it is the gospel that shows that Jesus and the church are the fulfillment of all of God's promises to Israel. We could divide Matthew's gospel up into two halves, or two stages, before the cross and after. Before the cross, the Jews are seen as God's 
chosen people, the ones who receive the announcement of the kingdom of God and who deserve to hear it first. But after the cross, Christ's mission and kingdom expand to include the entire world, to include you and me. Our dear friend Jeff Perswell, commenting on the purpose and structure of Matthew's gospel, says this, Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited son of David, who brings the history of God's people to a climax, fulfilling all the Old Testament and inaugurating the kingdom of God through his life, death, and resurrection. So, when we read the scene of Jesus' baptism, we need to keep the larger context of Matthew's gospel in mind. And keeping that in mind, here's what I think Here's what I think Matthew's main point is in Matthew 3, 13 through 17. Because Jesus, the Son of God, fulfilled all the promises of God, you can enjoy the fullness of the Spirit and the affection of the Father. Because Jesus, the Son of God, fulfilled all the promises of God, you can enjoy the fullness of the Spirit and the affection of of the Father. And as we examine this scene, we will see three particular components that Matthew aims to teach us in Jesus' baptism. We see first the obedience of the Son, the anointing of the Spirit, and the affection of the Father. First, the obedience of the Son. In Matthew's gospel, this scene, this event is the beginning, the inauguration of Jesus' ministry on earth. And really, it's this scene in Matthew 3, verse 13, where Jesus enters the story as a character himself. Yes, he has been present before this. He's been documented. Matthew documents his lineage, describes his birth, and all the incredible, miraculous, terrible attending circumstances, his conception at his birth, the Magi, Herod's evil plot, Mary and Joseph's emergency flight to Egypt. And we have been introduced to John the Baptist, described in Matthew 3 as a prophet, some new Elijah who comes to declare the word of the Lord and prepare its way for a rebellious and wayward people, calling them to repentance, all in uh, preparation for and anticipation for the ministry of Jesus, the Messiah. But Matthew 13, or 3.13, enter Jesus. Verse 13 begins with, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John. Jesus is introduced here for the first time as his own character operating on his own initiative. No longer is he the distant subject of some family tree or some helpless babe born in a stable, visited by magi, threatened with annihilation, rushed into exile. No, here we see Jesus on the move. He is intentional, he is motivated, and he's on a mission. And what does Matthew say is his mission? Why did he come all the way down from Galilee to this particular spot at the Jordan River to this particular man? Matthew says he comes to John, quote, to be baptized. And why did Jesus have to be baptized? Place yourself in John the Baptist's shoes. You may be the only one who knows who this guy is. Is and understands what his coming means, and he is asking you to baptize him. And we can sympathize with him in him resolutely declaring, I am not worthy. <laughs> I will not do this. He's not fit to baptize Jesus. But Jesus responds with an even firmer 
resolution. 315, Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In any story, the first words spoken by a character are important. (laughs) Often they set the tone of that character and give us insight into what kind of character this guy will be. Here is no different. The first words of Jesus indicate what is at the forefront of his mind. He is absolutely resolute, committed, determined to be baptized, and thus fulfill and begin his messianic mission. He understands his mission is to, quote, fulfill all righteousness. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament and have spent plenty of time in reading Paul, for say, and we all just finished Romans a few months ago, you may hear the term righteousness and think what Paul means by righteousness. Some legal, forensic, justification, right-standing status before God. And that makes sense, given Paul's audience, Greek Gentiles. But that's not what Matthew here means by righteousness. For Matthew, righteousness is not legal, or, but holistic. Righteousness is a whole person behavior that, account, that accords with God's nature, his will, and the coming kingdom. The righteous person is the whole person who does not just do the will of God externally, but with a willing heart. Here, Jesus is setting the example of to set himself apart from the Pharisees with their construed, legalistic understanding of righteousness and from the world's understanding. By submitting to baptism, Jesus demonstrates his determination to obey God's will and thus fulfill his righteous righteous mission of redemption. Jesus understands why he has come, to represent the people of God before God and to secure for those people this holistic righteousness. This is the plan of God. And Jesus willingly submits himself to God the Father in obeying his plan. In these opening chapters of Matthew, Jesus is depicted as this new, obedient Israel. He plays out Israel's Exodus story, one we're becoming familiar with as we go through Exodus. His miraculous birth, the rescue from the plot of an evil king, sojourn to and then calling out of Egypt, passing through the baptismal waters and the reception of the Spirit. Temptation for 40 days instead of 40 years in the wilderness. Obedience where Israel had not obeyed and the beginning of the conquest of God's enemies, seen through Jesus' healings, his authority over the evil spirits, and more. Ultimately, we see Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, submitting himself and his will to the Father's plan of salvation. He is the obedient son that Israel failed to be, and time a time again in the Old Testament. It's one thing to see all these interesting and, and cool connections between Jesus and the Old Testament, but Matthew's point here is not just to show how Christ is representing Old Testament Israel, but Christ is obediently submitting himself to the Father in order to represent you and me before the Father. N- notice, Jesus is asking to be baptized. John is rightly confused because to John, he was baptizing sinners and calling those sinners to repent of their sins. Just a few verses earlier in verse 11, John says to those seeking to be baptized that their baptism was of water for repentance, implying sin. But here comes Jesus, one who has no sin 
and therefore no reason to be baptized. He has no filth needing to be cleansed. John's resistance to even the thought of Jesus being baptized by him is hard to capture. It's hard to capture in the English, but in the original Greek, it is emphatic. John was adamant. He is not going to do it. But Jesus steps in. Jesus knew that greater things were afoot than simply being washed in the Jordan. There were eternal tectonic plates that were colliding. And by submitting himself to baptism, Jesus is doing more than just fulfilling Old Testament types and shadows. He's identifying himself as a sinner in the place of sinners in order that he might redeem sinners. This is the beginning, the beginning of the great exchange. This is an early picture of Jesus, the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us, beginning to take on his shoulders that which he did not deserve, namely sin. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus' determination to fulfill the Father's will centers around him coming to save the people of God. And in Christ, through his death and resurrection, the people of God no longer are this ethnic nation of Israel, but those who have been united to Christ by faith. Those for whom Christ represented are his people. Again, our friend Jeff Perswell describes this well. It's not that the Gentiles replace the Jews, but that the true people of God will no longer depend on membership in a nationalistic grouping or particular racial heritage. Membership in the new people of God will be on the basis of repentance and faith in the Messiah, Jesus. So, Christmas reminds us of the coming of Christ, who came to save sinners by obediently representing them, identifying with their sin, being baptized, and therefore accomplishing all righteousness. But as Jesus rises from the water, a scene unlike any other is described. Number two, the anointing of the Spirit. Notice, John spent, or Matthew spends no time describing the actual baptism. The endless debates over the mode or process of baptism find not much support in this passage because that's not Matthew's point. Rather, he blows right through that event and describes what happens immediately after Jesus comes out of the water. Look, verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. What a scene. It's unclear here if this is something that the entire audience there witnessed or if it was just exclusive to Jesus' perspective, but we, through Matthew's narrative, see what Jesus saw. The heavens opened, unbarred, rent in two, the barrier between heaven and earth temporarily set aside. And what would you expect to see next? Lightning, power, majesty, something awe-inspiring or breathtaking? No. Matthew describes the Spirit of God descending, not like a lightning bolt or a beam of blinding light, but as a dove. And it comes down from heaven, from God the Father, to accomplish something unique, to rest on Jesus. What's going on here? What is happening? Is there a guide that can walk us through this symbolism? 
Peter in Acts chapter 10 says this, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. This is a coronation scene. And and like any coronation scene, there is imagery and symbolism everywhere. Like Saul and David, Israelite kings of old, the anointing of oil by the prophet priest Samuel was an image of the Spirit of God resting on them. In fact, for both David and Saul, after their anointing, the Bible describes the Spirit of God rushing upon them. And of course, we know what happened to Saul. Tragically, when he continually disobeyed, the Spirit of God departed from him. So the Spirit is intricately involved in the anointing, consecrating, ordaining, empowering the kings and leaders of God's people. But in all those previous circumstances, the anointing was done by some mediator, some representative of God, a prophet, a priest. In England, the Archbishop of Canterbury does it. No, not so in this coronation. God himself is the one who anoints this king. And he doesn't anoint him with some oil, some substance to act in the place of the Spirit, but with the Spirit himself. This is no ordinary king. This is the king, the high king of heaven. All three members of the the Trinity are on display here. And the reason they're on display here is to show that all three members of the Trinity are active and present in the mission that's being set off that day in the Jordan. J.C. Ryle gets it exactly right when he poignantly says this. It was the whole Trinity, which at the beginning of the creation said, let us make man. And it was the whole Trinity again, which at the beginning of the gospel seemed to say, let us save man. This activity of the Trinity, these saving works of God are on display here in all their regality. How often do we think of our salvation as belonging exclusively to the activity of Christ? Now, to be sure, Christ's work is glorious, and our salvation is certainly not less than his representing and dying and rising for us, but we must remember that Christ came to accomplish the Father's will empowered by the Spirit. The Spirit's activity here in Matthew 3 isn't simply just to descend to rest on Christ and then move on. No, the Spirit's presence here is for anointing and empowering. I think it would be a healthy practice for us to at times to stop and consider all that the Spirit is and all that he does. His very name implies he's unseen. However, like the wind, we see the effects of his activity. The Old Testament describes him as a powerful agent in creation, bringing order to chaos. He's an agent of revelation, a channel of communication between God and his prophets. He's an agent of empowering the leaders, giving strength to judges and kings to execute his justice. In short, the Spirit of God is at work. He is a creator, a sustainer, a revealer, a director, a strengthener, an enabler, all so that God's people might experience God's presence to know him and to worship him and to serve him. And so for Jesus here at his baptism, the spirit who for centuries was preparing for him 
And for this very moment here, Matthew 3 descends down to crown him as king and as servant. The original Jewish audience would have seen this scene and read it this way. The Spirit of God descending down onto Jesus. They would have connected to another one of Isaiah's prophecies. Isaiah 42.1 says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. You see, Isaiah 42 begins the second half of Isaiah's entire book that is directed to Judah on the eve of exile. And he introduces this messianic figure whom he calls the servant. And for the next 12 chapters, the prophet describes all that this servant would do for his people. Namely, in chapters 52 and 53, die on behalf of his people. But before any of that takes place, the, pro- the people were to be on the lookout for the coming of the servant. And one of the key indicators that he had arrived is when the Spirit of God had been put upon him by God himself. And it is this Spirit that would be the constant companion of the Son. He was there at his conception, miraculously bringing life to a virgin womb. He's here at his baptism. He will immediately lead him out into the desert to be tempted and he will be with him at the end, all the way to Calvary. And this is good news, not just for Jesus, but also for us. Before the Spirit can apply the work of Christ to us, he is active in effectuating and empowering the saving work of Christ. And then having done this, when the Spirit comes to us, he comes bringing all of the saving works of Christ onto us, making it real to us, to the end that he, the Spirit, might even transform us into the image of Christ. It's the Spirit who opens our eyes to perceive the glory of Christ. Even now, this morning, he's doing it. It's he who causes Christ and the revelation of God to become our delight. And oh, may we not be neglectful of him in our worship and affection for the Holy Spirit. And and finally, all of this is leading the scene to its climax. A voice from heaven belonging to none other than God the Father himself, pronounces his judgment on this scene. Number three, the affection of the Father. After the Son had been baptized, inaugurating his representation with his people, the Spirit has descended, anointing and coronating this servant king, the Father speaks. I think at the end of the day, all us sons want to do is just make our dads proud, <laughs> isn't it? How much of our childhood, our, our short-lived sports careers, our hunting, our, our fishing, our, all of our achievements are done just to make our dads proud? And dads, how much do we long for our sons to be proud of us? There's nothing quite like that feeling of having your dad say, I'm proud of you, and I love you. And as a dad, there's nothing quite like hearing from your dad, Say, Daddy, you're the best, (laughs) and I love you. One of the sweetest moments in my life uh, was finding out that Jamie was pregnant with with Adeline. Uh, Just the massive shift that takes place as you anticipate being responsible for another human being. And I believe it was a recommendation of a a friend who said, "You, you should read a book called Father Hunger by Doug Wilson. And in that wonderful book, Wilson sets out to trace the, quote, rot that is eating away at the modern soul. 
fatherlessness. And to call men to be fruitful, God-honoring fatherhood. It's a fantastic book. But what stood out to me was the opening chapter. Wilson uses this scene in Matthew 3 to show the archetypal, the, the, the great and fullness of fatherhood and what it looks like. He says this. There is a world of information about fatherhood in Matthew 3, 16 through 17. First, when Jesus was baptized, his father was there. Second, he made his presence felt by sending his spirit to descend like a dove in order to rest upon Jesus. Third, he made his presence known by speaking. And so what did he say? His statement corresponds with the giving of the spirit in that the father identified with his son. He said, this is my son. Fourth, he expressed his pleasure in his son. The first thing, the first thing we are told about the relationship of the father to the son is that the father thought his son was doing a great job. (laughs) It's in this scene, in this scene, what the father has shown by deed in ripping open heaven and sending the spirit is now made explicit through direct word. Word and deed, deed and word. That's how God has always worked. It's how he works in Genesis, in creation. It's how he's been, we've seen him work in Exodus. And it's how Jesus is going to work throughout the Gospels. Word and deed. And the word given by the Father here is one of communion and association. This is my son. And not only that, but a word of affection. This is my beloved son who I am well pleased. Remember Isaiah 42.1. Behold, my servant, whom I am uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. The affection of the father to the son is the climax of this scene. Everything has gone and will go according to plan. But how many of us are here this morning, we hear this, father-son affection and say, that's great, but that's not how I remember my relationship with my dad or what my current relationship is with my dad. My dad is distant, unloving, absent, cold, gone. Texts like these do not bring up the warm, nostalgic memories, but grief and pain. Maybe you're anticipating another Christmas without your dad there. Maybe this is the first. How is this scene of fatherly affection good news for you? As wonderful and affectionate as this scene is, remember, all of this is part of Christ's mission and path. And that path is leading to one inevitable destination. And when Christ arrives at that destination, where all of his obedience and all the spirits, the spirits empowering has brought him, he will look up to heaven once again, longing to hear loving words, to feel the affection of the Father again. But instead of comfort at the cross, he will only hear silence. No more dove, no more love, just cold, wrath-filled silence. And he will cry out, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? And after this cry, he gives up his spirit and dies. 
What happened? How could we get there? How did we get from the miracle of Christmas to the affection of the baptism to this cold scene? It's like Susan and Lucy standing at the stone table wondering, we were just feasting together. We were just celebrating Edmund's return. How did we get to this horrific scene? Aslan, dead on the table. The servant, crushed by none other than the father. Isaiah 53, 4-6 describes this work of the servant. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This has always been the mission of the Messiah, of the servant, of Christ the Son. This is why he came. This is why we celebrate Christmas. Christ, the beloved Son of God, crushed for our sins. The wrath of God poured out on him so that you and I, notice, might have peace. We might be healed. We might experience the affection of the Father. Christ, the perfectly obedient Son, paid our penalty so that we might be counted as righteous. It's a miracle. He is and has always been the sacrificial lamb being prepared for the slaughter so that on the last day we will sing, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Through his death and resurrection, the mission which was launched at Christ's baptism, you and I are no longer children of wrath, but have been adopted as sons to God. Through our union with Christ, the wayward and the fatherless now find a home and father who pours out his affection on you and on me. This is good news for us at Christmas. This is why Jesus came. So if you are in Christ, you no longer have to fear the cold, wrathful silence from heaven, but instead experience affection and love and delight. This is good news and is hope for absent fathers and wayward sons. Regardless of your experience with your father, this Christmas, you can experience the affection of the Father through the work of the Son by the power of the Spirit. And if you are here today and don't know that affection, you're not safe from that wrath, appeal to you. Rely on the Son. Turn to Him. And through Him, you will experience the affection of the Father. And when we doubt how God feels about us, remember that you're standing before God. His affection for you is not dependent on you, but on Christ and his final work on the cross. And this is not just temporary, a, a moment. It's eternal. No one could say it better than Paul in Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God and is indeed interceding for us. What and who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, dangerous sword, as it is written, for your sake you are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, no powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a Savior. Thank you, Lord, for your Son. And thank you for Christmas. Let's pray. Father, how quick we are to doubt your love for us. One of the chief aims of the enemy is to turn our eyes not up to heaven, but inward to our own sin, our own rebellion, our own waywardness. But God, would you, through your spirit, open our eyes to see Christ. Christ and him crucified, who stood in our place, took the wrath that we deserved, so that now forever, if we are united to Jesus, we are sons of God. And the affection of a father is poured out on us. What a gift, God. May you strengthen us this season. Give us peace and joy that only you can give because of your delight in Christ and in us. We ask all this in his name. Amen.